Let us remember our new identity in Christ. That when we put our faith in him, we go through a radical change in our identity from children of darkness. Abounding in Faith is the broadcast ministry of Emmanuel Bible Church of Howell, New Jersey. For more information, please visit www.ibcnj.org. And we're going to turn this morning to our lesson in Ephesians 5, continuing in our series in Ephesians. And uh, this is really a sub-series within a series. This is our fourth part on the new life we have in Christ. And so we saw from really uh, chapter 4, verse 17, all the way through 520, that uh, Paul is talking about the implications of our salvation in Christ, that we are a new people, and that transforms us, changes us, changes our perspective, and changes our character. And so we'll continue on in verse 8, verse 8 through 14. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light In the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that are done in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture. And we pray, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts through the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit who illuminates our minds and teaches us truth, leads us into truth, that we may understand your thoughts, Lord, that you've given us here in these verses. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. You know, in the first verses of Genesis, we read that God created the heavens and the earth. And that the earth was without form, void, and in darkness. Then God spoke in the first words, God spoke on the very first day was let there be light and there was light. When we read the Bible, Light becomes one of the constant themes again and again. When you go to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 15, we read this testimony of what will be one day. Night will be no more. They will need no light or sun or lamp, for the Lord God 
will be their light. Regarding this nature and character of God, we see again and again that God calls himself light. 1 John 1.5, God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. The psalmist in Psalm 76.4 sings this same truth this way. God, you're resplendent with light and radiant. Your majesty shines forth. And again, Psalm 36.9, with you, O Lord, is the fountain of light, life, and in your light we see light. And of course, Jesus himself calls himself the light of the world. And so the miracle that we see of God who is light is that he brings forth light what was formless took on design was that which was without meaning took on form what was void became filled with his glory what was dark god brought forth that which is hidden through his glorious light. This theme of light continues, not just with God, but with man, who was created, remember, in God's image. Our original design, as we've been discussing the last few weeks, is to be light bearers, as designed in his image. But as we also learned, that because of sin, Man was propelled into darkness. When sin came into the the world, the Bible began to call us children of darkness. Darkened, as we read earlier in Ephesians 4.18, darkened in understanding. Instead of knowledge about God, ignorance. Instead of moral purity, where man was to reflect the qualities of love, um, kindness, mercy. Man's heart was darkened by hate, by violence, betrayal. But then a miracle happened, didn't it? God sent his son, Jesus, the one and only begotten, who calls himself light to show us the way that instead of darkness, we would be reconciled to God, the light giver, to receive new life and go from children of darkness to children of light. I love the way Second Corinthians 4 expresses this truth for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of the gospel of Christ. So I'd like to look at a few things this week. We read here in 5.8 that at one time we were in darkness. (laughs) I think we can concur with that, right? 
For those of us without Christ, we remember that day. For some of us long ago, for me, almost 35 years ago, my heart was in darkness. I was ignorant without understanding of the true reality and nature of this world. But look at what he says in 5a. But now you are light in the world. And then the command, walk as children of light. So I want to celebrate this morning, but I also want to meditate together on three profound truths we find in our text. One is, let us remember our old life. Let us reflect on what we were to better appreciate what we are. Secondly, let us remember our new identity in Christ. That when we put our faith in him, we go through a radical change in our identity from children of darkness to children of light. And finally, let us remember our call by God to holiness, to walk in the light as he is light. So let's look at these truths together, remembering our old life. In Ephesians 4, chapters 4 and 5, we see a very long laundry list given of the things we participated in when we were without Christ. Look at this. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, we read that we are darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignorant, hardened in heart, callous, given over to sensuality, and even greedy for impurity. He continues on in in 425 through 31, he says, talks about falsehood, anger, stealing, corrupt talk, bitterness of heart, slander, and malice. In chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, the list continues. Sexual immorality, covetousness, foolish talk, crude humor, and foul language. That is the pattern of the children of darkness. You know, there's a theological concept called the total depravity of man. John Calvin, one of the fathers of the great reformation in the 16th century, wrote a treatise called the Institutes. And actually the Institutes became the foundation of what would be called the Westminster Catechism, which had a tremendous impact actually on America when it was founded. What some people don't realize is from 16 40, after the pilgrims arrived, all the way through to 1820, the main textbook for a grammar school child was the New England Primer. And part of the New England Primer, depending on which edition you had, had anywhere from 25 to 50 to 80 questions of the Westminster Catechism covered. And so the students 
in grammar school during that period of time for 150 years were first instructed in terms of doctrine, uh, not mathematics first, not English first, not science first, but theology. And if there's anything great about America, I can guarantee you it goes back to those great foundations that were so sure and so strong, they last in some measure to this day. I was listening, uh, I was over my dear friend Brett's house, and I was listening to his young son's online class. He's in, I think, fifth grade. And they began the class with the Pledge of Allegiance. And I said, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. Yes, there it is, one nation under God. It's the last standing vestige in the public school system of God. And there's forces even to take that away. So Calvin wrote these institutes, and one of the concepts that Calvin introduced was the total depravity of man. There are many dimensions to this doctrine, but the the best way to explain is this, that because of Adam's sin, all of mankind was infected with a sinful disposition and nature. The best proof text to remind ourselves of this is Romans 3.23. All have sinned. There's no difference between any man. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Earlier on in Romans 3, Paul expressed it this way, there's none righteous, no, not one. There are none who do good. So here we are reminded that being, uh, though men are capable of, of doing good things because they're creating God's image, deep down within the heart of man, there's this infection called a sin nature, and that makes him totally depraved. He's unable to reconcile himself to God and to give himself life beyond the grave. For that, God had to send his only begotten son. That's what makes the the gospel good news, that man has been given an opportunity through Christ for new life to become children, not of darkness, but of light. And so, I like what Paul does in Ephesians 5.8, he says, I want you to remember that one time you were darkness. You weren't children of light. You were incapable of generating the life of God to the world around you. But now, what does he say in 5.8? You who are in darkness now are light in the world. This, this is a new identity. When we come to know Christ as Savior, we're forgiven, given a new life, and now become children of light, lights of the world. And that original design that God has given us to reflect his glory, to be light bearers, is restored. And so now we are on a journey to reflect to bring glory to God through our lives. I like the way Jesus expressed it in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew, 14 through 16. He says it this way, 
You are light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You know, the worst kind of Christian is the hypocritical Christian. Of course we know that. Because the world is wagging its finger and saying, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You are to reflect light, and I see darkness. And the world is right to protest for us to claim one identity, but then reflect another in our disposition, whether it's our attitude, our anger, our addictions, our behavior, our speech. And so the world is right to wag its finger at a Christian community that is not reflecting this light of God's goodness. And so in verses 8 through 10, Paul's reminding us to walk as children of light. And look at what he says, bearing the fruit of light. That which is good, right, and true. And then he says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, the word discern is an interesting one in the original language. The idea is one of a jeweler who's able to examine and look at precious metal or a precious stone and discern its authenticity. I was looking at a video this past week, and I I was so struck by it that I decided I'm going to try. Let's see how this works out technology-wise. I'm going to try to share it with you, just a minute and a half. Is it possible that we can pull that up? There we go. Whoa, we are really firing on all cylinders now. Okay.
All right, that's good. That's good, Brandon. And of course, um, I was thinking to myself, I think most of us know that that silver bar is worth about 150 then. Uh, and of course, it's, I think now silver's just gone up. It would be about $330 now. So discernment. You see, we have a world out there choosing, based on what they know, the wrong thing. And that's just, of course, a humorous way of reflecting it. And because they don't know, it's a, a state of ignorance. We are children of light. We're not a people in ignorance. We've been giving the light of the gospel. And now we have the privilege to walk with new habits and to live in a way that pleases God. And the idea here of pleasing God is to choose an attitude, a behavior, an action I know is going to make the other person happy. This June, my wife and I are going to be married 30 years. We've learned over this period of time what makes each other happy and what frustrates or aggravates one another. I become extremely knowledgeable about what pleases her and what does. I know it doesn't please her to leave the toilet seat down. Up. <laughs> Up when I go to the bathroom, down when she comes in. Yeah, that's the problem. I got up, down, and down up. Uh, dirty dishes in the sink? No. Half listening when she's trying to tell me something? No. I'm not saying I fulfill these. I just know that she doesn't like them. Generally, any selfish thing I do would, would on some level not please her and vice versa. So I know what pleases her. Cooking a meal, listening with undivided attention, planning a special time. Over the years, we become more discerning to what pleases each other. And as we clothe ourselves with Christ, we choose, not always because we're sinners. I don't want to stand here and appear like I'm doing a better job than I am. But we choose, based on the premises of Christ's call in our life, to please one another, to love one another. With the Lord, it's similar. We learn through his word, the Bible, what pleases God and what doesn't. And when we live as children of light, then our lives bring God joy. Earlier on in chapter 4, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So it's possible to, to grieve God. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the uh, rich man boasts in his riches. Don't let the mighty man boast in his, bo in his uh, might, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me, the God who practices steadfast love, righteousness, and justice in all the earth. 
For in these things, what does God say? I'm pleased or I delight. And so we make it our aim to please God. So we remember our old life, what we were. We remember our new identity and then this final point this morning. We remember our call by God. Look at verses 11 and 12. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. Here we see our call by God that our lives, rather than participating in darkness, is that through living as children of light, reflecting light, actually make dark deeds visible. We become agents of revealing the fruitlessness of darkness and the shame of practicing sin. Have you had that experience? I have. It's frustrating for some. It's a drawing measure where they want to know more. They, they want the goodness. To others, to others, they actually get angry and upset with you. What do you think you're holier than thou? Do you think you're better than I am? And, and there's all these things that people conjure up in their minds because our lives, if we're walking righteously, full of goodness, has a way of exposing sin. You know, there's an interesting passage uh, in Mark, and Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem. This is his last days before the cross. And as he nears Jerusalem, he comes to a fig tree and does something extremely odd. He curses the fig tree, and in Mark eleven thirteen, we read the reason because he could not find fruit on it. Now, there's no real explanation there. So what in the world is Jesus doing here cursing fig trees? Well, Jesus is giving us a picture of God's view on a people who claim faith but do not bear fruit of faith. He's specifically talking about the people of Israel who had the trappings of religion but no fruit. Instead of being light bearers, they claimed God, but their deeds were fruitless. Instead of reflecting goodness, righteousness, truth, they became a people of darkness. Israel had forgotten its true identity. And when her Messiah came, instead of receiving him, they rejected him and ultimately handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. In Christ, under a new covenant now, we have the unique privilege to live as lights in the world. Think about that. Exposing darkness so others may know God 
and come into his light. Light does that. That dirty, hidden closet, you know, remains off. As long as the lights remain off, that mess remains untouched, doesn't it? Every time that light comes on, it's a reminder of the mess and the need for that space to undergo renovation, a cleanup. I have a tool closet that is like, ah. Every time something needs adjusting or fixing, I go down there and go, oh, I know I got to take everything out, reorganize it and put it back in. I don't want to do that. When it's out of view, lights are off, I don't think about my tool closet. It's only when I got to go down there and get a tool that I'm reminded of the mess it is. And that's what light does. Not only when we accept the Lord, his light reveals the sin in us so that we can repent and go the way that he wants us to go, to live in a pleasing way. But then when we live... With light, our light then shines on a world in darkness and reminds many of their need for transformation and change. Look at verse 13, 14. He finishes up with this simple truth. When anything is exposed... By the light, it becomes visible. And anything that becomes visible is light. And then Paul throws down the gauntlet about the seriousness of our call here. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Here Paul's drawing from the prophets of Israel. Now God can rouse us from our spiritual slumber to our call to rise up from a deadened position and through Christ to become alive, children of light. Christ will shine upon you. Before we have the Lord's Supper together, I asked my wife to come up and share a story that for us had become one of the most profound symbols of transformation in our work in India. So since she was the one at the center of the story, I asked her to share it, and then we'll partake in the Lord's Supper. Good morning. So Joe... Oops. Joe didn't give me a time frame, but I'll try to keep it concise and to the point. I want to tell you this morning the story of Chinta. Uh, when we were working in the village in India, I met with a group of women, I don't know, half dozen, eight women, and I'd go down there weekly. Um, and my considerate husband, I was thinking about this, he hired me a three-wheeled motorized rickshaw that would pick me up at the same time every week and bring me out. 
And I'd bring my little toddler, Anna Marie, and my infant, Danielle, at that time, would get in the rickshaw and rock our way out into the village and meet with these lovely women. Um, we were studying John 4, which is uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. And these women were outcast women. And we would do our study sitting next to a well. It was very appropriate. Um, but there was one woman in the group that I wanted to talk about this morning, and her name was Chinta. And in Hindi, Chinta means worry. Can you imagine naming your beloved daughter worry? So that was Chinta. And she had, um, her features were very um, closed, very centered on her face. You know, it was very tight. Her face was very tight. Um, and all these women, of course, were new believers. We were just sharing the gospel with them. And I was trying to encourage their prayer life and encouraging them to pray. Um, and you know how hard it is when you're a new believer to pray publicly, right? Have we all had that anxiety? So they were struggling with that anxiety. So I asked them, I put my foot down, I said, we're going to go around the circle, and I'm going to have everyone pray. And we were doing okay until we got to Chinta. And she looked at me, and they, they called me Dee, which is big sister, and she said, Dee, she said, every time I want to pray, I just feel this weight on me, just this heaviness on my chest. I can hardly breathe. So I said to the ladies, well, you know, what should we do, you know? And Prem Kumar's wife said, well, we need to pray for her. So we started to pray for Chinta, and then the Holy Spirit put it on my heart, and it was just such a, like, a Holy Spirit moment that Chinta needs to pray for herself. She is in Hindi would say Malik, She's, she was the landlord of this home, this home of her heart. And she was the one who needed to make that choice to pray against that heaviness and that spirit of darkness on her. And um, so I really encouraged Chinta to pray, and she did. Um, and that was it. So we kind of finished praying, and that was it for that day. When I came back the next week, I almost didn't recognize her. Her whole face opened. She was just glowing. She had lost that heaviness, that worry that was holding her, that darkness that was over her. She had um, not submitted to the darkness but turned toward the light of Christ. Her life had been transformed. So that's the story of Chinta and how God replaces darkness with light. And it's a choice that we make to believe in Christ, to turn our life over to Christ, to be willing, to be able to be free in Christ, or to hold on to that darkness and stay in that dark place. Thank you.
my honor off, and now I'm on. Um, we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. Uh, does everyone in the congregation have a cup and a cracker? If you're at home worshiping with us, this is your opportunity to maybe get a piece of bread from your refrigerator and uh, maybe some juice, if you don't have juice, water. If you're a wine drinker, I guess wine. It's a little early. Just a little sip. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He said, the man who walks after me will no longer walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What a beautiful promise from our Lord. Amen to that? That's why we gather. We gather here to celebrate and to remind ourselves what is true from God's word. That ultimately, Christ, who's the foundation of the church, universal and the foundation of our church, Christ, his words to us, become the basis for our new life, our transformed life. And the metaphor that God uses again and again to help us understand that is light. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took that bread and he broke it, giving thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And of course, we know those words were fulfilled when Christ was beaten, whipped, and ultimately went to the cross. But then he also took the cup. It was a Passover dinner, and it would have been probably the third cup, which is the cup of redemption. And he took that cup, says, this is the blood of the new covenant, shed for the remission of sin. We know that Christ shed his blood for our sin that we may be forgiven, atoned for. So he, his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. And he took the bread and he took the cup and he invited the disciples to eat and drink in remembrance of what he would ultimately do. And that's what we're doing today. Eat and drink.